We acknowledge with respect the Onondaga Nation, Firekeepers of the Haudenosaunee, the indigenous people on whose land Syracuse University now stands. May the information you glean from this podcast motivate you to uphold indigenous values, protect Mother Earth, and honor indigenous treaties. White supremacy is a prevalent topic in the United States. It thrashed our country in the 20th century, and now we see its more covert and ever more present influence today. But why do white supremacists feel they are on the top of the hierarchy? That's what we're gonna explore by looking at the doctrine of discovery or the doctrine of Christian discovery. Welcome to the Doctrine of Christian Discovery. I'm Tanner Randall, your host from Good Faith Media. We're producing this podcast at the Religious Origins of White Supremacy Conference in December of 2023 at Syracuse University in New York. This year is particularly special because it's the 100th anniversary of Johnson v. McIntosh, the Supreme Court proceeding that installed the framework of the Doctrine of Discovery within American government. We will be talking about the different ramifications of the Doctrine of Discovery and how it led to indigenous values and land being stolen, as well as white supremacy and the general idea of revitalized indigenous culture. The Doctrine of Discovery allows a certain kind of mindset. With white supremacy, It establishes the idea that there is a conqueror and a conquered. It puts the justification for people to see themselves as better than others. And in modern times, we often see that government structures are terrorized by one group deciding the social and moral implications of an entire society. So what we're gonna do with our next interviewee is explore what stories we can dissect to understand the influence of the doctrine of discovery, or uh, as we like to call it in this podcast, the doctrine of Christian discovery. We would like to thank our sponsors who made this podcast possible. Many thanks to the Henry Luce Foundation, Syracuse University, Indigenous Values Initiative, American Indian Law Alliance, American Indian Community House, Good Faith Media, Tanatiera, and Towards Our Common Public Life. We appreciate your support. I'm Tanner Randall with Good Faith Media. Our guest on this episode is Robert P. Jones. Robert is the president and founder of the Public Religion Research Institute and author of The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy. I'm here with Robert P. Jones, and we are going to be discussing white supremacy and how it is interacting with the doctrine of discovery. Um, Robbie, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Uh, To start us off, I have been studying a lot about white supremacy and the doctrine of discovery, and white supremacy changed significantly over the last few centuries. I find it more covert, but increasingly present. Uh, Maybe that's because online forums are popular and often can perpetuate different echo chambers. But in what ways does white supremacy inflate the ideas of the doctrine of Christian discovery? And where do you see its influence today? 
Well, as you know, uh, my last book is called The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy. So I named it that for a reason, because I wanted to trace it back, particularly in the American context, to yeah, its inception. And how, how does it get here on this place we call you know, the United States of America? And you know, it turns out that it arrives really along with Christian explorers, right, from Europe. Um, and it is the, you know, it is embedded really in religion and the religion that they they bring to it. So, you know, one of the things that I think is um, not talked about that much is, is um, you know, when Columbus comes back in 1493, not 1492, but 1493, um, he comes back with a mandate, right? And he gets that mandate uh, from the king and queen of Spain. We all kind of learned about that. Um, but what we don't learn that much about is that he has another mandate. It's a moral mandate. Uh, and he explicitly asked for it and got it from the Pope, right? From the head of the, of the Western uh, Christian church at the time. And it was, it was that moral mandate that really had the power uh, that said, basically, if you were European and Christian, uh, you had the right uh, to occupy land, steal goods, uh, uh, and in the the words of the uh, the doctrines and the doctrine of discovery, I mean, it literally says, and they're written out, you know, uh, uh, from the office of the Pope, uh, that you have the uh, reason to do that and to submit their persons to perpetual slavery. Right? That's just written out in the documents. It's very clear, uh, not not a wink, wink, nod, nod, but a very explicit mandate um, that Columbus brings with him, and it, it comes again uh, from the Christian Church. And really, we're still struggling. Uh, here in our country with that very idea, right? That with the superiority of European people uh, and Christian religion. Uh, and th that word, those terms, Christianity and civilization, show up over and over and over again in American history uh, as the kind of justification for the entire uh, transatlantic slave trade, the uh, colonization of, of these lands, uh, and the uh, forced removal and genocide of indigenous people. So it's it's all right there, right, in, mm -hmm. in this doctrine of discovery um, that Columbus brings with him in 1493 and that all the European powers bring with them uh, in the wake of that. Mm -hmm. it, it's interesting because the roots of the doctrine of discovery is obviously from the uh, Catholic Church and the papal bull. But we're here this weekend uh, for this conference because of the 100th anniversary of Johnson v. McIntosh. Yeah. And that instilled it within our or America's constitutional framework, which I always find bizarre because we're a country founded on the idea of the separation of church and state. And so I guess I have a question for you of how does that kind of go f from an idea that is used to colonize indigenous peoples to one that instills wh white supremacy or um, racial inferiority to other outgroups mm -hmm. in the United States Constitution. Yeah, well, you know, it, it doesn't just pop up in 1823. Mm -hmm. um, that's the thing. I mean, it, it's notable that that's where it enters U.S. case law uh, mm -hmm. in, in, at the level of the Supreme Court. Um, but, you know, before that, I mean, it's in our culture, right? So the whole ideas of manifest destiny, for example, I mean, that is, in fact, the doctrine of discovery, right? This right of the country to basically take over this entire, for Europeans to take over this entire landmass from ocean to ocean. Uh, that idea is, again, carried in this Christian doctrine um, of discovery. And it's also in our founding documents. I mean, people, I, I think, uh, forget that, you know, if you take the Declaration of Independence, um, it is 
is there, right? It, there is uh, the things that the the colonists are complaining about. We also forget that that's it is a doc, a statement of um, great democratic principles, but it's also a list of complaints uh, to the King of England, and among those complaints. Um, are things that are all about white supremacy. They're they're complaining that the king is allowing slave rebellions uh, among the colonies. They're complaining uh, uh, that that the king will not let them uh, occupy more Native American lands, and that they are at the mercy, uh, are that they are being um, uh, attacked by the merciless savages. That's in the Declaration of Independence, uh, right? And of course, the Constitution um, explicitly excludes Native Americans. Um, uh, it explicitly just says excluding Indians not taxed, like in the document uh, there. And also uh, African-Americans, it counts them infamously as three-fifths of a person and then only to increase the power of the people who own them, right, um, uh, to enslave, to white enslavers. So it's, in our, it's not inconsistent at all, right, for in 1823 for us to have a Supreme Court decision um, uh, that John Marshall writes uh, and relies on that same cultural understanding to kind of insert it uh, in, into into law. So it, if you know, the further you get into history, the more you realize, oh, this is not Johnson v. McIntosh is no anomaly, right? It's like the inevitable legal outcome of this cultural worldview. Um, I, I find that you know hard to digest sometimes is those other concepts within the Declaration of Independence, like you're saying, that they were mad the king was allowing slave rebellions or restricting their ability to encroach on indigenous land because so much of it has to do of what we are taught in school and i'm kind of alarmed by the fact that those weren't main points yeah. within my own curriculum yeah. um but i that kind of brings me to my next point of or my next question of in a you know increasingly confrontational society how do we approach these ideas and expose them to people without um, those of different opinions completely shutting down? Like, how do we present that? Well, it's really challenging. Um, I, I'll start by saying I do think most people want to know the truth. And I, I think for my own journey, so I grew up Southern Baptist in Mississippi, right, and, and got very much, uh, you know, a, a very one-sided, uh, false, mythological you know, view of history where, as James Baldwin put it, you know, our ancestors were uh, always heroes and always noble and always treated uh, immigrants, uh, Mexicans and Indians, with, and, and were kind to slaves and, and treated everyone with care and dignity. You know, that, that was the mythology. Um, uh, and that the Civil War was the war between the states, right, uh, and not a war fought over slave, to protect slavery. Um, that was the kind of history that I really grew up with. Um, and for my own journey, uh, coming out of that kind of evangelical Christian, um, really neo-Confederate world, um, it, it really was a realization that I'd been lied to, uh, that for me, so I can speak very personally about this, and that, like, I actually wanted to know the truth about um, our history, about my own family's history, um, and getting clear about that has been really important. And as I've spoken around the country, I've probably been, I don't know, couple hundred, you know, uh, speaking uh, things in the last few years, and many of them in churches, uh, in predominantly white churches. And I am finding a pretty big appetite for them to say, like, actually, we do want to have this conversation. We do want to have this reckoning. Um, uh, and we don't want to just live in this kind of false world we've constructed over the, over the century. So I think there's an appetite. And we're at a moment in this country 
uh, a moment. I think, I think we are at a moment of historical reckoning, right, where mm-hmm. people are realize, okay, we've been sold a bill of goods here, and it's time for us to really, um, really, it's, it's a kind of maturity. It's a, it's a kind of move out of a, a childish world of impossible innocence in the way we think about our past and to come to more reality and a more mature way of thinking about American history. It's really the only way uh, we're going to find a way to live together in a pluralistic country going forward. We certainly can't do that built on a foundation of lies. Mm-hmm. And I know you're a big stats guy. Um, <laughs> and I find it interesting, you know, going into those churches, it must be kind of unique each time you speak to a group of people deciding, you know, am I going to go more of like a narrative storytelling route? Yeah. Or am I going to kind of bring in a lot more facts and things like that? So what's that balance like? And kind of what are the challenges you face with creating a unique presentation for these very diverse groups? No, that's a great question. Um, yeah, to PowerPoint or not to PowerPoint, <laughs> right? That is the question um, always. And sometimes I, I do and sometimes I don't. I think you're right, depending on the, the situation. Um, but one nice thing, so I'm trained as a sociologist. So one nice thing um, I think that historians and sociologists have is we've got the receipts, right? Um, so we're not just kind of alleging things or, you know, asserting things, but there's actual documentation and science, right, that we can point to. So as a sociologist, you know, I can really point to things like, um, well, uh, we've been talking about this, you know, dusty 16th century uh, or 15th century set of doctrines. Um, Really? Are they still around today? I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, I even I might be a little skeptical of hearing that for the first time that 500 years later, we really, that's still operative. Um, But, you know, we are able, we did public opinion surveys at at the organization I run. It's called Public Religion Research Institute, uh, PRRI. And uh, we did a big national, a couple of national studies last year where we asked literally about the doctrine of discovery because we wanted to see, is it still with us today or not? Uh, And we asked people like, do you agree or disagree? Um, that the United States uh, was designed by God to be a promised land for European Christians. Like, we asked it straight up uh, in those surveys, and we found out that um, about 30% of the country agrees with that statement. Um, So on the one hand, if you're looking at the glass half uh, full, um, you know, by a margin of two to one, Americans disagree and reject that idea of the doctrine of discovery, but there's a sizable minority, 30%, that agree with it. And then if you look at how that divides out, um, there are basically two groups uh, where it's a majority, and the groups are white evangelical Protestants. That's the group I grew up in, uh, Baptist, um, you know, evangelicals uh, largely in the Southeast, um, and self-identified Republicans. Majorities of both of those groups today agree with that statement. So it is alive and well, um, you know, in some of our mainstream white Christian religious groups, and uh, in one of our two political parties, it now is the majority view. So it, it's very much... Uh, a part of the national debates, um, even today. It's a complicated situation for me because the First Amendment, not, you know, the 12th Amendment or anything like that, the First Amendment gives the freedom of religion. And it is so clear in our framework that this country is not something that is destined for evangelicals to take over and assert their dominance. And I think that... There are a lot of different situations where you can see that. I know that in my own personal experience, um, my school system, I went to public school in Oklahoma. 
we saw those kinds of lessons being taught even in a public space. Um, and, you know, they may be transitioning out of it now, but it still is happening today. People still see the system as something to take advantage of. So my hope is that that's going to change and that there are going to be people within that system to um, kind of rid um, secular organizations of, you know, religious practices or whatnot. But I think that you know, on that note of kind of t talking about these isolated stories, and then you can look back to larger ones. Um, in your book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy, you talk about the Emmett Till um, tragedy. And that is an extremely well known um, event and influential and brought a lot of important issues to the forefront of a lot of people's minds. But you also kind of dissect um, another tragedy in Minnesota where three um, black men were hanged, correct? Or hung. Right. Yeah. Um, but that's a relatively unknown story. And I think that when I read that for the first time, I was shocked because it's just another thing that is an example in testament to the pervasiveness of racism and how deep it runs in these places that you don't hear about as much. Cause everybody's like, there's racism in the South. Yeah. Um, a lot of it. And it's like, well, you know, yes, but these stories that aren't well known also occur. So can you talk, speak a little bit about kind of what, how, what's productive about redissecting these more famous events and then what is productive about going into these smaller, or not isolated, but these smaller, relatively unknown uh, instances? Yeah, well, so in, in the book, I write about uh, three, three states, uh, Minnesota, Oklahoma, and Mississippi, right? And in, in all of those settings, what I'm trying to do is hold together two histories that we usually, if we learn them at all, learn them separately, right? Indigenous history and history of African Americans uh, in, um, in, in those places. And so uh, in Mississippi, I tried to kind of tell the story, uh, as you said, it's, it's quite you know famous. People around the world know the name Emmett Till. Uh, but if you had gone to Tallahatchie County, in the Mississippi Delta, where it happened as recently as the year 2000, there was literally nothing on the ground telling that story. No historical markers. Uh, no, you could not find any anything to tell you that that that's where that happened. Even though, again, it, people knew it around the world. To make it really personal, I graduated from public school. Um, I was a valedictorian in my class. I had learned everything they asked me to learn uh, in in public school. And if you had asked me who Emmett Till was when I graduated high school, I could not have told you. And that was 1986. Uh, right? If you had asked me who Megger Evers was, uh, I could not have told you. Uh, and he died. He was assassinated nine miles from my driveway uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, where I grew up. Uh, so I think part of it is trying to tell those stories. And the story I learned nothing about uh, to kind of keep it all in the Mississippi context was uh, the Trail of Tears, right? And and the Choctaw and the Chickasaw and the Creek uh, in, in Mississippi. My high school mascot was the Rebels, right? As in Confederate uh, Rebels, right? We literally had a Confederate colonel who was our mascot and the band played Dixie and there was a Confederate flag that ran up and down the field when the football team scored a touchdown. <laughs> oh my that's my high school, right? I go to, that's public high school. They, by the way, it was integrated, half black, half white, and that's the... Uh, the imagery at my high school. And then I went to my little Baptist college right outside of town in Clinton, uh, uh, Mississippi, Baptist college. What's our mascot? Choctaws, right? Uh, and who do we have as a mascot? A, like cartoonish Indian chief, right? With a big exaggerated head that ran down. And when the, well, what do we chant when the football team scores a touchdown? Scalp them, Choctaws, scalp them with the little tomahawk oh, thing goodness. going on, right? So that's, 
that's the world in which I grew up, and yet I knew none of the real history around this. So the, all these caricatures and appropriations of this very near history to us, but without any grounding uh, in in um, in what really happened there. And you know, as a white Christian guy growing up, without any awareness of what role my people played right in those events as they played out, uh, really not that long ago um, uh, in the state. So part of what I'm trying to do in each of those state um, places is tell the story of kind of European Christian contact with indigenous people and African-Americans in place uh, there and to try to tell those two stories uh, together because really they are tied together. Like just to make it really plain in Mississippi, um, you don't get the mass importations of enslaved labor until you get the forced removal of indigenous people, right? You have to first move them out of the way to make that into farmland, right? And then you need enslaved labor to clear it all uh, and turn it into farmland, right? For the benefit of Europeans. And so we have to learn to see those histories uh, together, uh, which we've just not done that well. Hmm. There are two things in particular I want to comment on after that. Uh, first is, you know, I, I've heard stories. I know that uh, my dad grew up and went to a high school that was, you know, known as the Redskins, and they did similar chants to your high school. And I, I grew up as it being pervasive. But kind of like you said, I was also um, very involved in the academic community of my high school. And still, when I graduated, it was not known as the Tulsa Massacre. It was mm. still the Tulsa Race, race Riot, right. yeah. which is a complete misnomer of that event. And so it's something to me that I kind of look back on still shocked by this effort to hide and conceal the reality. And the second thing I want to touch on is with those stories of, you know, you're saying that your high school mascot was the rebel and the college outside of town was the Choctaws. I think it's important to dissect those smaller instances that may not involve violence or anything like that to show how panoptic those concepts are. And for somebody, a person of color, it doesn't go away. It's always there. You know, it's not a headline they're seeing in the news. It's something that is seen as acceptable by a large group of people. So I think it's really important that you brought mm -hmm. that up. Uh, there are some redeeming paths um, to some of these tragic events. So can you speak to what that town has kind of done to reclaim uh, their own history? Yeah, so you know it's uh, Duluth, Minnesota. Um, uh, I came across the story of these three African American um, circus workers. They were in town for a single day, um, were falsely accused of assaulting a white woman, uh, rounded up and jailed on very little evidence, um, and then were uh, lynched by a mob. Like, and at the time, the crowd that gathered there numbered somewhere around ten thousand people. Uh, uh, and at the time, that was a tenth of the population of the town of Duluth. So one in ten people in town turned out uh, to see these three uh, men uh, lynched. Um, and in the aftermath of that, as it as happened in Tulsa um, after the Tulsa Race Massacre and other places of violence around the country, there's this there's this like massive effort at forgetting that happened in the white community and just let's bury it. Let's never talk about it again. Uh, let's just move on, um, even though no justice was ever done uh, there. And there was a group 
um, uh, that got together really um, uh, in, uh, in Duluth, and it was actually just three people. It was um, it was a, um, a white woman, a Latina woman, uh, and an African American man who decided, you know what, like we need to tell this story, right? Because it uh, they, certainly the very small African American communities did not forget this story um, uh, there, but we need to tell the story, uh, and it could be a way to kind of promote healing in, in the uh, in in our city, and so they began to gather. Um, um, you know, support, and they ended up. Um, they were, were just going to put a plaque there, at, at, at kind of where it happened. And it turns out they raised enough money that they actually created an entire plaza. It takes kind of the kind of corner. It's a beautiful place. It's kind of a brick walkway. It's got um, a kind of frieze of the three men with their names uh, there, and it has all these kind of inspiring quotes against hate and uh, for justice and unity uh, around the around the plaza. And they did this quite early. They just like in 2003. So this is well before the Black Lives Matter movement um, uh, starts. And I think they're the first city to actually do a public memorial to the victims of lynching um, uh, there in, in 2003. What was significant about it is that when the Black Lives Matter movement um, kind of launched in many cities across the country, we're seeing demonstrations of people gathering. Duluth actually had a place where people knew to go. They actually just instinctively gathered at this memorial um, and the police kind of knew what was going on. And it turns out in Duluth, the peace, the police chief um, was related to the woman who falsely accused these black men and, and only came to know that story because of the work of commemoration uh, that happened. And all of that influenced the way the police even acted uh, in Duluth, right? And so instead of heavy handed, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, ways of kind of resisting people uh, peacefully demonstrating, even if they didn't have a permit, uh, he was like, look, I understand what's going on here. I understand the need for this. And they really kept their distance. They kept people safe, but they weren't heavy handed about it. And I think just that little example is something, one, that they had a place to go uh, to kind of gather and to kind of talk about what was happening with George Floyd. I remember that George Floyd happened right down the road, right, in St. Paul, right? Um, so in, in, sorry, Minneapolis. So just down the road from Duluth. Um, so this is a very local event uh, for them, and even though it was happening nation, nationwide. But there was kind of this space, kind of almost a sacred space they had created for racial justice um, uh, in the city. And I think that paid a lot of dividends for them. And, and you know, I could have written uh, really 50 chapters, uh, one for each state, both about the horrific racial violence, uh, but also about efforts to mend and heal uh, from that. And I think it's these local efforts. Um, when I'm thinking about like what what, is, what gives me hope looking in the future, it's it's these local efforts of people on the ground who decided like you know what our we can do better in our community and we can tell the truth and we can build a foundation for uh, a better way forward for all of us. Awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Doctrine of Christian Discovery, recorded at the 2023 Religious Origins of White Supremacy Conference at Syracuse University in New York. This podcast is produced in collaboration between Good Faith Media, Syracuse University, and the Indigenous Values Initiative. I'm Tanner Randall for Good Faith Media. Our executive producers are Mitch Randall of Good Faith Media, Philip P. Arnold, and Sandy Big Tree of the Indigenous Values Initiative, and Adam D.J. Brett of Syracuse University and the American Indian Law Alliance. Our producer is Cliff Vaughn. Our editor is David Pang. Our music comes from Pond5. Production assistance provided by the American Indian Law Alliance. To learn more, go to doctrineofdiscovery.org.